Well, good morning to you all. Happy Valentine's Day to everyone. Uh, as Vern said, it's gotten a little colder out there since we first got here this morning. It's turned out to be a cold Valentine's. Well, so thankful to see all of you all here this morning and for those who are joining with us online. And let me say this, if you are joining with us online, if you have been blessed so far by this service and especially by that music, he is worthy. I love that song and our choir is amazing every week. Uh, though they only be four usually in uh, these services because of coronavirus, they sound like 40. And uh, thankful for that. But if you've been blessed so far, I encourage you to, if you're watching, especially on Facebook, hit that share button and share this service with others. But so thankful for those who are in the building here this morning. There are three families that I am excited to see. I'm excited to see all of you all. But there are three families in particular I'm very excited to see. Uh, Gary and Debbie Simpson, uh, God bless you. So thankful that you are here this morning. Uh, Miss Debbie, we continue to pray for you and that the Lord would reveal what is going on and continue to heal your body. Uh, the Williams who are here with us, it's been seven long weeks since you guys have been here as you guys have been battling through COVID. I'm so thankful that you guys are here and are well. And the Warrens who are here, uh, so good to see you guys and little William that's there. God bless you all for being here. Uh, it's exciting to see the family come together again. But in reality, I'm so thankful to see all of you all. So uh, please don't, me pointing out these uh, three precious families, I'm just it's exciting to see them. It's been a long time. Well, God bless you all. Happy uh, Valentine's again. Uh, this Valentine's went a little extra, is what Heather said, uh, with Valentine's giving. Um, you know those little chocolate hearts that you can get? I started looking to get a chocolate heart, and I was looking at one about this size. And I was like, well, that's, that's kind of small. Uh, I need to get one not only for Heather, but one for Ella. And so, you know, they, they grow in size, right? They go from this size to about this size, and you've got the velvet-covered ones that are about this size. Well, I kept looking at it and I was going, that's, that's just not big enough. It's not big enough. And I finally found one that was a square. It was about this size. It has 89 pieces of chocolate in it. It's called the gold pot. And uh, so I picked it up. I was just like, come on, let's do this thing. And, and of course, uh, as you bring something in like that, there's no way to hide a box of candy that's, you know, the size of your entire body. And so I just brought it in. And I was like, uh, babe, here you go. Happy Valentine's Day. So I, I have definitely given them the gift of a sugar coma. So you all be in prayer for them as we move forward. Well, today we continue in our series in Philippians. So if you would please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 18. Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. While you're turning there, just a very brief announcement. You'll notice in your bulletin that we have our regularly scheduled business meeting uh, next week, right after the 11 o'clock service. I encourage you all to stay around for that. Uh, we're going to be discussing some important business, especially about some new positions here at Mint Hill Baptist Church that I'm very excited about. So I uh, want to alert you on that. Well, today, going to be looking at a... Uh, an incredible piece of scripture that flips all expectations on their head when it comes to bad situations. And I've titled today's sermon, Bad Situations Are Not Setbacks. Bad Situations Are Not Setbacks. When we think of a setback, something that knocks us backwards, that stops momentum, one of the things that we can think of the most as an example in recent history with missionaries is a story that you are all familiar with of Jim Elliott, a missionary to Ecuador. Jim Elliott in his mid-20s, early 20s, called by God to reach out 
knew he was going to be a missionary and, and was asked about being a missionary and being a youth pastor here in the United States. And, and he said, I think those in the United States are well fed with the gospel. And I am called elsewhere. And he was drawn to Ecuador. But not only Ecuador, but a specific tribe that he learned about in Ecuador called the Aka or the Warani. This is a tribe that had had no outside influence on it, had never heard the gospel in their entire history, barely had relations with the other tribes in Ecuador, and certainly had never met a Western person, much less a missionary bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Jim Elliott felt very burdened to bring the gospel to this tribe. He and five others decided to set out and begin contacting this tribe. Through the course of very many months in 1955 and early 1956, they flew their airplane over this tribe and would drop gifts out of the plane and try to lure with a rope different things to try to draw the tribe out and try to earn their trust. In fact, over this time, they were able to land the plane, get to meet some tribal members, and in fact, took one of them on the plane for a plane ride. I'm sure that guy's mind was blown by all of that. So feeling that things were getting more comfortable and excited for what God was doing, Jim Elliott and four others landed their plane one day on a riverside and got out to meet some tribal representatives that they thought were coming to greet them, 10 members of the tribe. As it turns out, those tribal members were not coming to greet them. They were all bearing spears and as Jim and his compatriots stepped out of the plane, said hello, they were violently and brutally attacked and killed on that riverside. Their bodies would be found later downstream. Now, in that moment, you could look and say that is a setback for the gospel. Here, this tribe, known by even the other tribes to be vicious, have now murdered the people that were bringing everlasting life to them. And you would be forgiven to think that this was a setback for the gospel. But if you know the story, you know that that's not what happened. And in fact, what occurred from there is Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, continued his mission and would come to this tribe and after they have killed her husband and killed the husbands of her friends, they all gathered and met this tribe, not only beginning relationships with them, but they moved in and lived with this tribe for the next two and a half years. And Elizabeth Elliot became friends with and brought the gospel to, and they were saved radically by Jesus Christ, the same people who had murdered her husband. They became lifelong friends. And the gospel flourished amongst these people. Even to this day, the evangelism of Jesus Christ is paying dividends for what looked like a setback because five men were killed. Jim Elliott, before his death, immortalized a phrase, a quote that we are familiar with. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he, that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot 
lose. And the gospel has paid dividends ever since. And that's what I want to focus on today. We, even in our own lives, have stories of where something seemed like a setback, but God used it to advance His will and His mission and the gospel. Not the least of which, in all of human history, the death of Jesus Christ would seem like that's the end. And yet, it was only the beginning. God uses bad situations to His great advancement of the gospel. I subtitled today's sermon, I don't often do that, but I subtitled it, Finding Godly Opportunities in Hard Moments, because we need to hear that. In our own life, we may face a hard moment, whether that hard moment is an illness of which many in here are facing and still face to this day. The setback could be relationships. The setback could be monetary. Any number of things can seem like a setback to us. And to our plans, yes, it's a setback. But to God's plans, no, it is not. And it's how we view it will be how the Lord uses that moment. So if you have read, if you have found Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18, will you please stand, if you are able, for the, in honor of the reading of God's Word. God's Word says this, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that which has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of good will. These preach out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Let's pray. Mighty Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be gathered not only in your house, but spiritually all across this city. Lord, I pray that as we lean into your word, Father, your spirit would fall upon us and stir in our hearts, Lord, that we would see bad situations, whether my brothers and sisters are in them now or will face them in the future, that, Father, you would be glorified even in their trouble. Lord, that you would use these moments to advance the gospel. Father, may you change our hearts by your spirit to look to Jesus first in all things. Lord, I pray that you would move in this hour and in this moment. Father, that you'd move me out of the way and you would speak so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I pray this in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Already in this text, as you've heard, there's an expectation. Paul's in a difficult moment. But everything has been flipped upside down where it seems like a setback to him. What he's saying is this, is that he is joyful in the progress of the gospel, even though he is in chains and imprisoned, and that he is also joyful in those who are his rivals, who are advancing the gospel out of envy and selfishness. So as I look at the text today, talking about 
bad situations are not setbacks. There are two things that I want us to concentrate on today. The first of which is this. Chains in our life are not setbacks. Chains are not setbacks. Look again at verses 12 through 14. Here Paul says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. What is he talking about? What has happened to him? Well, he is in chains. He is under house arrest in Rome. He is imprisoned. And he is writing to the Philippians who would naturally be concerned about his situation. Not only his well-being, because this is not easy, but also a natural concern to say, is this the end of the powerhouse missionary that Paul is? Is this the end of the mission? Has it come to Rome and ceased? Will it go no further? Is there a stopping of the gospel? And Paul is saying, no, brothers and sisters, just the opposite. I know you are concerned for me, and he's already praised them for how much they love him and he loves them. And he's saying, I want to give you good news. What has occurred to me has been a blessing because it has advanced the gospel's in ways that no one could have expected. He said it's advanced, but it's advanced in two unexpected ways that he lays out for us, first of which in 13. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. So the first unexpected way is that it's been advanced in Caesar's household. It has been advanced throughout the imperial guard. He says it's known throughout the entire imperial guard. So what's the imperial guard? Well, this is the praetorium. You may have that in your Bible. It's translated that way, praetorium. Well, the praetorium were 9,000 soldiers who were handpicked out of the creme de la creme, the best of the best of all the centurions in Rome. Why were they handpicked? They were handpicked to be the royal guard, not only to attend to Caesar and all those who surrounded Caesar, but also to attend to governors, to kings that might be under Caesar's rule. So Pontius Pilate, Herod, others would have the Praetorian Guard assisting them. But something else would occur with the Praetorian Guard. Part of their task was to guard important prisoners who were going to appear before Caesar. So these 9,000 soldiers, the best of the best, have influence all over the Roman Empire. And now one of them has been assigned to Paul. Now, what does it mean to be assigned to a prisoner? Paul tells us he's in chains. Well, the Praetorian Guard, instead of having a prisoner chained to a wall or thrown into a pit, they would literally shackle them to the guard. Now, these guards would be rotated in and out fairly frequently. But I want you to picture this. I want you to picture the guy that is shackled to Paul. Think about that. Use your imagination as you think about the guy that is now walking into the room with Paul the Apostle, and he's clicking the irons around his wrist and is going to be hanging out with Paul for the next weeks or months. Think about the opportunity that's happening in there, how Paul would witness to him, how Paul would pray to him and pray over him, how Paul would interact with all those who would come to visit with him. Imagine what that guard got to hear in all of that time. 
But go back to the very beginning, as soon as the irons are clinked around this guard's wrist as he's watching over Paul, what do you think the first question you, that praetorian guard is going to ask Paul? Why are you here? What have you done? Why are you a, appealing before Caesar? Imagine the opportunity, the door that just got opened. And Paul's response to that, he would be saying exactly as he says in 14, my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. And the next question, who is Christ? And oh, Paul is going to begin to share with them, let me tell you about this Jesus. Let me tell you about it, God incarnate. Let me tell you about the man who walked on earth. Let me tell you about the man who was nailed to a cross and died for the sins of all of humanity. Let me tell you about the man that that didn't stop him, that he rose from the grave on the third day. Let me tell you about the man that ascended into heaven. Let me tell you about the man that reigns on high right now and who I am loyal to until the day I I die. And when I die, I don't die. I go to be with him. Let me tell you about this Jesus. Oh, man, can you imagine the firsthand account that these guards got to hear from Paul? Oh, guard, I am not here because of a crime. I am here because of a man. I am here because of Jesus. And though Caesar is king over Rome, Jesus is king over all. And I give him my allegiance. Oh, think about that. Think about the time that this guard spends with Paul and hearing that. Think about the beautiful prayers that Paul has been praying. Think about the conversations they've had. Think about him getting to witness letters being written to other churches. And then... After all that time, when the next guard comes in and says, hey, buddy, you've been relieved. It's my turn. What that guard would do as he would go out, a guard of great influence. And if he's been converted, he's going to go tell everyone he knows. And he's going to tell some of the most important people in the Roman Empire. He's going to share to the point that Paul says, the entire imperial guard knows that I am here because of Jesus Christ. And he says, not only that, not only does the imperial guard know, and this is why I say how amazing this is, how the gospel has advanced in ways that no one could have ever seen. It's not just the imperial guard. It's not just the elite soldiers of the Roman Empire who are going to be sent to stand with the most elite people of the Roman Empire. No, it goes straight into Caesar's house. And how do we know that? In verse 13, he says, not only the imperial guard and to everyone else. Who's the everyone else? We get a clue on that in the end of this letter in Philippians 4.23. He says, all the saints send you their greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. Friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ has penetrated into Caesar's household, the most powerful man on the planet, his household. And those in it have bowed their knees, not to him, but to Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, friends, brothers and sisters, we could have all thought that this moment was the moment 
that the gospel began to run down. But I had faith. I knew even on the ship when the angel told me, you've got to appear before Caesar, that my chains, though I be shackled, the gospel is unfettered. It is free and it goes out. And now even Caesar's household knows it. Now the most elite of the elite soldiers know it. A bad situation was not a setback for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The second thing, the amazing way that the gospel is advanced was in Christian courage. So not only through the Praetorian Guard, but Christian courage. Look at verse 15. To be sure, I'm sorry, verse 14. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. They have gained confidence and speak fearlessly. Now, have you ever been in a situation throughout your life that you've been around someone that has a lot of courage and they take big risks or they are going through something that you've not gone through and you look at them and say, that's a profile in courage. I can tell you from my own life, just being a boy, if you hang around other boys long enough, there's going to be that one boy that's going to do something that all the rest of us are going to go, what is, what is he even thinking? See, I grew up in uh, rural Hendersonville, North Carolina, and we would have all these guys that we'd hang out with on our street and everything like that, and, and we're out in the middle of the country, and so we would build dirt piles and jump bikes. There's always that one guy who would one-up everybody, and he would make the ramp higher, or he would jump a ditch, or he'd do something that was just not on any one of our brains, but he would do it, and we'd all just be standing watching to see if he's going to hit and die and break a leg or something like that, and he lands it, and guess what's the next thing that happens with every other boy in that moment? Oh, he did it. I can do it. Instantaneously, courage just magnifies because that guy went through it. But on the other side of things, on a much more serious note, have you seen someone go through suffering and do so well? Does it not give you courage that if that comes to you, you've seen someone else go through it and that you can have courage? Have you been in a situation that someone was treated unfairly and they gave you courage to speak out because of how they were treated? See, when someone suffers well, it gives courage to all those around them, especially when that someone is suffering well for Jesus. That's what suffering well is all about suffering for Jesus and doing so with courage. It gives confidence to all the rest. So how for us, how do we take this and apply it to our own lives? Very simply is this, at some point in time, at some point in time, all of us will be in chains. May not be prison chains, but we will be in chains of suffering somewhere along the line. Again, from a disease, relationships, financial crisis. And so the question for us today is, will we see it as a setback or will we see it as a godly opportunity to advance the gospel, to be courageous, to show God in the midst of that? See, when we suffer well, we embolden others to do the same with us. When we praise in our suffering, it becomes an encouragement for everyone else. 
I think very specifically, seeing Catherine Berry sitting on the front row here. For the past few weeks, she's undergone intensive, horrible radiation treatments. And if you're on Facebook and see what her mom posts every single Tuesday and Thursday, she says the same thing. Part of her prayer is this, that God would be honored in the healing of your body. That's an encouragement to all of us, isn't it? Catherine is suffering well. You don't ever see Catherine walk around with a frown on her face, do you? She suffers well. I look at Miss Debbie Simpson in the back row. Miss Debbie has suffered well. It's been a hardship for her. And we all know when we see her what joy she brings to us. Two women who are always smiling and who will encourage you even when you're trying to encourage them. See, when they suffer well, it lifts us all up and emboldens us all. Commentary I was reading says this so well. Courage is contagious. The timid catch boldness from the brave. So Catherine and Miss Debbie, thank you for being examples to all of us of suffering well so that we may be encouraged and bold. Because, uh, friends, there will be a time at some point where we'll be in chains. Let us set our hearts and our minds now to seek Jesus first in the midst of it so that the gospel has an opportunity to spread in ways we would have never thought. So that's the first thing I see, is that chains are not a setback. The second is a harder thing to look at, that others' ill will towards us is not a setback. Others' ill will towards us is not a setback. In verses 15 through 18, we see something unique occur in the life of Paul as he is imprisoned. There are people who have motivations that are negative towards Paul, and they wish to see him suffer. And how do they do it? They try to outdo him in preaching the gospel. And he says, look, even the gospel can advance when people's motivations are wrong. Notice the two groups that he talks about in 15 through 18. He says in 15, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. He sets up for us the two groups. Two groups are preaching the gospel, one out of envy and rivalry, the other out of love for Paul. He carries on with those who love him and say, they know that I've been called to do this. They support me. They lift me up. And they do so by preaching God's word. He said, but he returns to the negative, the first group, the one that is trying to put him in greater distress. He says that they preach out of envy, rivalry, and selfish ambitions. That word envy and rivalry. He uses it in three other letters that he writes. In those cases, he uses it in the negative by saying that these are reprehensible people. People that display envy and rivalry are those who are anti-God. And yet, what do we see from this? These These preachers are preaching a correct gospel, doing so out of devilish motives. How odd is that? He says, why are they doing this? Specifically to cause me trouble in my imprisonment. Think about how awful that is. 
They're preaching the gospel well, but they're doing it to hurt Paul. Now, your translation may have it slightly differently with cause me trouble in my imprisonment. It literally means to add to my infliction, to make my chains hurt worse, to make me feel more chained up. Now, what's interesting on this, and the reason why I say this is a more difficult text to approach, is this. He is not saying these individuals are preaching a false gospel. He's written entire letters to people who are preaching a false gospel. He'll call it out fast. He says, no, though they're devilish motives, they're preaching the correct gospel. The reason why this is difficult, because it can come very close to home when it comes to churches. So I approach this with as much delicacy as I can, but the words have to sting a little bit. This situation happens too much in church circles where churches become envious and rivals of other churches. That's what's happening here. Why? Envy and rivalry to begin with. Churches look to other churches and see that they're doing well. They may be growing. And in fact, they may be growing so rapidly that the church that's mad is seeing their people drain out and go to this other church. So what happens? You hear, don't go to that church. Don't listen to that guy. Don't be a part of that movement. And so the question that we have to ask in that is why? Why? Is that person preaching a falsehood? If so, they should be called out on it. Paul would call them out. But what if they're not? What if the envy and rivalry is coming from the fact that their style is different? That they're growing it like gangbusters? That they're filling up the baptism pool faster than anyone else? That they're claiming salvations faster than anyone else? That your church is dwindling and they're growing? We all know this. I'm not saying something that is not uncommon. We've seen it happen. Well, now we get mad that that church is doing better than this church. And so what occurs out of envy and rivalry? We're going to either do it better or we're going to do it different or we're going to badmouth them. Oh, church, we cannot do that anymore. Woe unto us when the church of Jesus Christ turns in on itself. If they are preaching the gospel, what should be the response? Same response that Paul gives. He says in verse 18, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. See, selfishness ramps into that too. Selfish ambitions. What could be happening here is that Paul has been taken off the table, as it were, as a missionary. He's chained up. So someone steps in and says, I can be the next Paul. And so they try to outdo Paul in preaching. He's in prison. I can make a name for myself. This happens. But Paul says, if they preach Christ, it does not hurt me worse 
it spreads the gospel further. And this is the dichotomy that's so hard for us to wrap our heads around. What Paul is saying, if their motives are wrong, God will deal with them. But if they are preaching the gospel well, amen. Let it be preached and let many come to know Jesus Christ. Here's the attitude we should have. Same as Paul. Praise God that the gospel advances. As long as Christ and the gospel multiplies, amen. We have to be careful in this. Now, how could this apply in our own lives? Certainly, we can see it on a church level. We must, as a church, as a congregation, as other congregations, unite with other churches, not fight them. But maybe on a more personal level, what do we do? What happens if someone is envying us, is trying to rival against us? They're, they're doing it with the wrong attitude. We may not necessarily see it in the same way as Paul, but we're going to have rivals in our life. And those rivals may try to outdo us. Why? Because they want the praise. They want to be the better Sunday school teacher. They want to be the better whatever. And they see your success, and they want to fight you. And they want to do it to try to kick dirt in your face. Your attitude can be the same as that as Paul's. They're being the better Sunday school teacher, have at it, by all means, because God will deal with their motives. Those that try to kick you while you're down. This is what Scripture tells us in Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. What do you do with your rival? You treat them well, and you praise God for their success. And by doing so, you will heap burning coals on their head. I can't even begin to imagine as people are hearing this letter, and Paul's saying, there's people out there, man, they're, they're wanting to hurt me. But I'm so happy with what God is doing, because God is good all the time. And he uses these situations. So an application for us in this morning, a serious one, let us be woefully careful on disparaging other churches, sister churches. We have a world that's lost and dying, and we need to concentrate on the gospel spreading, not on tearing one another down. And if people in your life are trying to tear you down, trying to one-up you, you do two things. You pray for them. You cheer them on. But you also look for, as Paul says, those that are encouragers that love you, are supporting you, and they're doing it the right way. And you lift them up as well. See, our attitude in all things, whether it is in a situation of our chains, our suffering, or whether it is in an attack from rivals and petty people who wish to use us as stepping stones, Paul says in both situations, those can seem like setbacks. But to God, who works all things together for good, will use it as an opportunity if your attitude is focused on Jesus as a means by which he'll use it to advance the gospel. And so we must be focused on Jesus first. With that being said, here we are. We come to the end of this text. And it's a hard text. 
got really quiet in here as I got to the second point. It's something serious we need to pray about and think about. God's word does not return void. So how will it not return void this morning? In two ways, I pray. That in your suffering, you don't see it as a setback, that you suffer well. Next week, we're coming to a sermon that I'm so excited to preach about, to live as Christ, to die as gain. What does that mean for us? It means suffer well so that others may be encouraged. Don't see your suffering as a setback, your chains as a setback. So if you are facing perhaps even a a time where there's a little bit of self-pity going on, this is a time to reflect and pray about that. I say, Lord, change my heart. How can this be used for your good? It's also an opportunity if we have held ill will to sister churches for whatever reason. May we pray the Lord purge that from our hearts, that we not be the ones who are envying and rivaling, that we are not the ones with selfish ambitions, that we are the ones that are focused on Jesus Christ and him crucified and the gospel spread out. But also, if you are facing someone who's doing that to you today, in what way can God lift you up and use that situation so that others may know him better through it? But as I said, that attitude comes with Jesus first. And there may be some here today who do not know Jesus. And this may be the first day where you put him first. I pray this, and I ask you, church, to pray as well, if there be just one who does not know Jesus Christ, will you pray that that individual, their heart would be softened and that the gospel message would settle in? The gospel message is simply this. Repent of your sins. Confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You will be saved. And he will begin in this moment a lifetime of good works. And those good works can begin with suffering well. So pray for that person. If that's you, come forward this morning as we sing, right after I pray. But maybe this morning you want to join Mint Hill Baptist Church. What a morning to do it on this Valentine's Day. Maybe you need prayer. This altar is open. Come up and pray. We'd love to pray with you. But let's take an opportunity to focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Mighty Heavenly Father, Lord, come before you even now. Lord, I'm thankful for the upside-down nature of the gospel, that in pain there is beauty, and it's only found in Jesus Christ. And, Father, I pray that those who are in chains today would suffer well and encourage those around them so that the gospel would spread. Father, I, I pray forgiveness in my heart for our church, for churches around us, if we have looked to sister churches with envy, with a nature of rival, with selfish ambition. Forgive us. Lord, we're thankful that you have grown your church. And Lord, that you will use it to spread the gospel. Do so as you please. And Father, I pray that even now in this moment too, if there's anyone who doesn't know your son, Father, that you act and you move. And Lord, that you would be glorified in this service. I pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.